0: Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the First Bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning.
1: Joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join. Us. I'm Erin Forward, MSP CCC SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for
0: all our squirrels. And enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Happy morning, folks. All right. So today's guest, I met a few years back at a FLASHA convention. That's the Florida Speech Hearing Association convention. And got to give you a super important side note. If you've never been to a FLASHA I just got to say, it's like a three to five day convention for SLPs of muchness, and you need to go ahead and mark calendars now for next year. Post round 482 of COVID, it will be phenomenal. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So anywho, I have the honor today of interviewing Dr. Kelly Farquharson, who's an associate professor and director of the Children's Literacy and Speech Sound Class Lab at Florida State University. Hint, 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 you can find her on Instagram at at class lab underscore FSU. Specifically, her research examines the intersection between speech sound production and literacy acquisition. And y'all, if you know me, then you know that this entire topic makes me feel like a fish out of water because this is something that I personally do not evaluate or treat at all. But I find absolutely 1000% interesting. So without further ado,
1: Dr. Kelly Farquharson, PhD, CCC, SLP, thank you so much
2: for coming on. Thank you for having me, Michelle. I'm so excited to be here and so excited to extend our relationship beyond FLASHA and and CSAP and to (laughs) really get to talk some details. Yes. Okay. So y'all,
0: I'm just saying you want to affect change in your state, please volunteer for your state association and then come to CSAP, the Council of State Association Presidents, because you're going to meet some of the most dynamic and passionate leaders and we have a fabulous cocktail hour at every action. So we <laughs> we're like, what you don't know it happens <laughs> at C
2: <laughs> said. That's right. I just,
0: yeah. I, I I think my favorites are when we do the silent auction because they're never silent and everybody always ends up yelling and that's hysterical. <laughs>
2: It's a great group. It's so much fun. And I I totally agree. I just second, and I'll probably repeat this again towards the end, is just to join your state association. It's the place to make change. And it's a group of dynamic people who all have very similar experiences to you with respect to living with the state legislation that is influencing practice patterns. And so it's a really important way to contribute to our field.
0: Yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> Volunteer. No, I'm not, we're going to say that again. Okay. So, I mean, I'm a PFD girl, like all the way with a second love of AAC up until the point that they hit two and three word combos. And then I'm like, and I'm out because now you need grammar, and that's not me. <laughs> so, like, this whole topic is, it's like magic to me. And, I am grateful for those of y'all that excel where speech sound disorders meet dyslexia because it's truthfully a foreign language. And then you add in that phonemic alphabet. And I can't even read the cute stickers that we see on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so like, how, how in the world? My students are like, what does your laptop say? And they're like, "Miss Dawson, you don't know. And I'm
2: like, nope, not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> but like, how did this become your thing? Oh, that's a really good question. And rightfully so, I think the pediatric feeding disorders world is one that I, that kind of makes me cross my eyes. So I think it's, you know, it's it's all <laughs> about balance in our field of finding what really motivates you and where your interests are. But I was really lucky actually as a master's student, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Pittsburgh. And, Ooh, and so I'm from, yes, I'm from Pennsylvania. Yep. And then I did my master's degree at Penn State. And the reason that I went to Penn State is because there was a funding opportunity to work on a personnel preparation grant called the speech language literacy grant and the entire purpose of it was to explicitly prepare master students to work on literacy for school age kids and so it was a funding mechanism from the U.S. Department of Education, and it funded my time at Penn State, so it paid for my master's degree. And during those two years, in addition to the regular CSD curriculum, I took additional seminars on literacy, so written language, dyslexia, and then had to do our master. There were 10 of us who were funded on that. And we had to do our master's research project on something that was related to literacy. So a lot of the projects that we did had something to do with communication disorders and literacy. And then as a kind of a payback requirement for that funding, we had to work in the public schools for two years for every one year of funding that we received. And so... I received two years of funding. So I was required to work in the public schools for four years after graduating. So that is really what started my interest in literacy was this explicit training. And you know, this is 2003 to 2005. That's when I graduated. I'm from Penn State. And so this was really at the very beginning of when literacy was really kind of highlighted as part of our scope of practice for SLPs. And so this was shortly after the National Reading Panel report came out, and there was a lot of effort to help SLPs understand what their role in literacy was. And so it was a really important time to receive that training. And then from there, you know, I did then work in the schools as a school-based SLP for four years in Pennsylvania. And it was... Truly through the experience of getting to know these kids and their families, working with classroom teachers, working with reading specialists, working with special education teachers that really just showed me like there is so much here. This is such an important role. And at the same time, I felt paralyzed by what I didn't know, (laughs) even though I had this really, really good training. And so I was like, I need to figure out more about this. And it was at that point Mm -hmm. that I decided to go back for my Ph.D.
0: All right. So where did you do your PhD?
2: I did my PhD at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. And so that was a big move because I had only ever lived in Pennsylvania my whole life. And I really wanted to learn more about dyslexia and was still super interested in speech sound disorders and the intersection between the two, kind of this broad idea of phonology, you know, so how we use the phonological system for all the things. So for speech sound production, for reading, for spelling, it was just fascinating to me. And so I started looking into who was doing research in that area and found researchers at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, and kind of just sent an email and decided to uproot my life and move my little family <laughs> to Lincoln, Nebraska, of all places, and did my PhD. There. Yeah, the corn huskers, exactly. <laughs> I have a
0: girlfriend from Nebraska and she roots for the Huskers. That, this is the yes. extent of my college football knowledge. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, yay. Yeah, that's pretty impressive.
0: <laughs> uh, serendipitous. Also, I love yeah. my work wife. Yay, bye. <laughs> okay. So, but this explains how, but wait, that explains how you got into dyslexia because you had this unique, amazing, phenomenal opportunity. But how in the world did you go from Nebraska to Florida? Mm,
2: yes. So from Nebraska, so I, I graduated with my PhD then in 2012. And from there, I had two stops before I got to Florida. So I first went to the Ohio State University, and I completed what's called a postdoctoral fellowship. And that's an, an additional training opportunity that happens after you get your doctorate, so it's postdoctoral. And for me, it was two years, but it can vary in the length of time. And that just gave me an opportunity to do a little bit more research, get some writing done. It was just kind of really intensive research training beyond the PhD. And then after that, I accepted my first faculty position at Emerson College in Boston, Massachusetts. And so then I was in Massachusetts for four years, and that's where we intersected at CSAP when I was mash President. Yep. And I was at Emerson for four years as an assistant professor. And then in 2018, the opportunity came my way to apply for a position here at Florida State University. And so in 2018, I moved here. So I kind of ended up living all over the country after only having lived in Pennsylvania for the first 27 years of my life.
0: (laughs) I mean, we moved to South Carolina on a Friday the 13th. And I was like, ooh, this <gasps> is going to be good. It's going to yeah. be really bad. And like, yes. you know, thank the Lord. It's been really, really good. <laughs> Creative, eventful pregnancies and house happenings. But, you know, sage and prayer, baby. We're going to make it.
2: <laughs> yep. You know, my parents got engaged on a Friday the 13th. And they've been <laughs> married now for almost 44 years. So I think that Friday the 13th is actually a good luck day. Yes, I love that. Well, that's good because I mean, uh, yes, yes. Okay. All right. So
0: you have this thing and this is how this, it keeps popping up on my Instagram account and it brings me joy and it's called phonetics Friday on your Instagram account. So can you talk to us about what was your inspiration for phonetics Friday and how that carries over for all of us SLPs out in the world?
2: Oh, yeah. I love Phonetics Friday. It's been so much fun. And it just kind of started kind of on a whim. But the reality is, so one of the classes that I teach here at Florida State University is clinical phonetics. It's an undergraduate course. And most of the students who are taking it are juniors. And all of them are in the CSD major. So This is one of the prereqs that we've all lived through. And it's funny that you mentioned too, Michelle, that it's not necessarily in your forte to read phonetic transcription. And I think (laughs) in, in part, you're not the only SLP I've had that conversation with. And so in part, it was SLPs like you that were part of the inspiration for Phonetics Friday. But it was also really my students The students I have at Florida State University, they're just absolutely outstanding. And they ask the kinds of questions that I absolutely did not have the capacity to ask as an undergraduate. And so they're just kind of blowing my mind day in and day out when they ask questions about why phonetics matters as a clinician. And it really got me thinking about why phonetics matters as a clinician. And it's not just about being able to read this secret language, which if you ask me, is just super cool, but it's also, <laughs> <laughs> it's really about understanding how the English language, so this can apply to any language, of course, I'll focus on English just for the sake of relevance here, how the English language and our knowledge of it can actually help us make really Strong clinical decisions, and so we learn a lot about. I'll start with it as an example, like the vowel quadrilateral, right? And so there are many SLPs out there who, <laughs> hear, who who either hear that and say like "what," or hear that and say like "oh yeah, there's an itch in the back of my brain." Somewhere back there I heard the term vowel quadrilateral. But it's just a, a four-sided shape that mimics the shape of the mouth in a very rudimentary way. And it's how we map out where in the mouth vowels are produced. And it has I to do with that. Yeah, yeah. So yes. everyone did learn it at some point. But one of the reasons that it is rusty for a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, I did hear that, is because I just think there's a huge gap in our training that with respect to learning those kinds of things and then saying like okay here's why you need to know this here's when this is going to be important for you as a clinician here's why this matters instead of just here's this random shape with these random symbols memorize them and you're going to have to you know regurgitate this it's really thinking deeply about why does it matter where in the mouth a vowel is produced And here's an example of why it matters. So one of the things we know from the vowel quadrilateral is that the tongue height, so where in the mouth the tongue is as far as elevation, you know, so if it's close Mm -hmm. to the roof of the mouth or close to the floor of the mouth, and then anterior versus posterior movement. So is it closer to the front teeth or is it closer to the back molars, you know? And so where in the mouth is the tongue actually hanging out during the production of this sound? And that can actually help us Choose targets or choose words in therapy to facilitate certain sound productions. So, for example, all of the front vowels in English, meaning the vowels that are produced at the front of the mouth, so our tongue is closest to our front teeth and our lips. Okay, wait, can, I'm trying, to, I'm going through the alphabet
0: A E I O. Is that O? U? Well, I don't.
2: What, So remember, too, in phonetics, we've got actually 14 vowel sounds in English. So we've got five (laughs) letters, but we've got 14 vowel sounds, and that includes diphthongs. So as an example of a front vowel is E. Okay, So our our tongue is really high and really anterior in our mouth, and we produce the vowel sound E. The other thing we know about the sound E is that our lips are not rounded when we produce the sound E. E. So you should kind of be smiling as you're making that sound. And so pair that with a sound like the R sound, which as an SLP who works on speech sound production, we know that that is one of the most challenging sounds that kids work on or one of the most common errors that kids produce. I'll say that. And also one of the most challenging sounds to treat. A lot of SLPs will say, oh my gosh, I hate working on R. One thing you can think about though, is the vowel context that you're using whenever you're treating R. So one of the things that happens when kids have a hard time saying the R sound is that they usually make a W sound instead, right? So they say wabbit instead of rabbit. And we see that, that played my out. Bear. Yeah. And we see that played out in cartoons. You know, there's a lot of speech sound disorders in cartoon characters actually. And so the W for R substitution is a really common one. So when we produce W, our lips are rounded. And what we want to try to do is avoid that lip rounding so that a child can produce the R sound. And so if we choose a high front vowel like E, then we're going to help that child avoid the lip rounding that comes naturally with W, and we're going to create a situation in which they can produce that sound better because of the vowel we've chose to pair it with. So a word like reach or read is going to be better to use in therapy than a word like root or room, which naturally create lip rounding because of the vowels that are in those words. And so the vowel quadrilateral is helpful from an anatomical standpoint, but actually can be helpful for clinicians to help them choose words correctly in their therapy sessions, because it really, it should be a situation where those words are doing the work for you. Yes, you're adding all the prompts and cues to help a child accurately produce a certain speech sound, but you can really use your stimuli and therapy to your advantage, have it work for you. And you can use your knowledge of phonetics to help make those choices. And so that's a really detailed example of why I found Phonetics Friday to be so important. And there's been a really great response I'm currently on hiatus just because I'm also in the process of submitting my binder for tenure. So that's uh, something that I've been working on this summer. So I took a little hiatus from Phonetics Friday, but I really can't wait to get back to it because it's really fun to think about the different ways that we can use our knowledge of phonetics to help us be better clinicians I just think there's so much there that it's in some ways a missed opportunity to really bridge that gap for here's what this sound or what this symbol means. And then here's where you're going to need this as a clinician. Here's why you need to know this. And that's one of the things I've loved about Phonetics Friday.
0: Well, I just tagged you in a Phonetics Friday post on Instagram because this is absolutely amazing. So, huzzah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. But like also at the vowel when you're describing like the height in positioning for the tongue, I'm thinking, hmm. So, when we have an aerodigestive tract anomaly through the nasopharynx, like enlarged adenoids and or like a grade four tonsil problem that's going to throw off their tongues. See, feeding does correlate to a bowel quadrilangle. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, I made you it know work. You, absolutely. Well, and you know, there's a reason, for example, why when you go to a, a pediatrician or when you do an oral mechanism exam that you ask a child to say ah instead of uh, E, right? You don't ask yes. them to say E because their tongue's going to be high in front in their mouth and you're not going to be able to see those tonsils and adenoids, right? Or no. tonsils. You can't really see adenoids, can you? But no, you, you know, there's a reason why God, you should not see adenoids. <laughs> You should not see them. So um that's the reason why we use ah, right? Because according to the vowel quadrilateral, that's the lowest and most posterior vowel sound. And so our tongue is at the lowest point in the mouth possible and that allows us to see tonsils or see if there are tonsils to see. Okay. Fun fact.
0: Whenever my oldest would say, ah, his epiglottis was so elevated, you would be able to see it before yes. his yes. like larynx dropped. I mean, cause he's, you know, turning into a man child at almost nine. <laughs> but also, do you know how awkward it is to try to find little boy deodorant that doesn't smell like teens and mm-hmm. gross, like, eh, no, but I moment. don't know
2: anything about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so gross. It's so hard. But fun fact, he really, really did like showing his epiglottis to all the lovely graduate students that mommy Ooh, would. Oh, I bet. Um. That's yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. it's oh Boy, mom life changed toppings. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So this is what I know of dyslexia. And you can laugh and tell me where and how I'm wrong. This is what I remember. There's something called a Wilson's Reader. There's a newer edition, I believe, of Wilson's Readers, but I don't really know what the new thing is. I just feel like there is a newer thing. And the rumor that colored clear rectangles for helping a word to stop floating is not really a thing. And that's the extent of my knowledge of dyslexia. So what do you wish that I actually knew?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, those are both good things to know. So there are a lot of myths surrounding dyslexia. So I Mm -hmm. think what I wish everyone, not just speech pathologists, but everyone knew is that dyslexia is not a visual impairment. And so it doesn't actually have anything to do with how we see letters. So people with dyslexia do not see letters backwards. There's no such thing as... Yeah, really. Yeah. So dyslexia is a phonological processing disorder. It has everything to do with how sounds, speech sounds are processed, accessed, stored, represented in the brain. And that is well-documented with fantastic fMRI research. So an example of a researcher who does that work is Nadine Gobb, who's at Harvard Graduate School. She does absolutely incredible work using the fMRI to kind of measure how kids with dyslexia process phonological information. But- That's why it's related to speech sound disorders, because both dyslexia and speech sound disorders are phonological processing disorders. And so they manifest in different ways because dyslexia, the primary symptoms are difficulty with word reading and spelling. And in Mm -hmm. speech sound disorders, the primary difficulties are with using those speech sounds accurately for speech production. But the speech Mm -hmm. sounds that we're talking about are the same. You know, it's the same set of phonemes that we're talking about that kids with dyslexia have a hard time with and kids with speech sound disorders have a hard time with. So for kids who have both dyslexia and a speech sound disorder, their phonological system is really impaired. They aren't accurately using speech sounds for any of the linguistic requirements. So for word reading or spelling or speech. And so the treatment really does need to be focused on teaching the phonological system and using a code-based approach is what we say. So meaning like tying those letters and sounds together. So knowing that a letter like F makes a sound, which is probably a terrible one to use in an audio format, but... um, (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean. Um, But then we also see on a word like phone, we see the letters PH. And then in a word like laugh, we see the letters GH. And so that explicit instruction of all of those letters and letter patterns make the same sound that's a code-based approach to teaching. And so you mentioned Wilson, which is one program that's available to help train individuals with dyslexia on learning that letter sound correspondence. It's not the only program available. There are a lot of different programs that use a code-based approach. And that's really the important part is that kids with dyslexia need to have a code-based approach to learning how to read. And so something that is focusing on comprehension, for instance, is not going to work because their issues aren't with comprehension. Their issues are with phonology and learning how letters and sounds go together. But yeah, importantly, it's not the case that they see letters backwards or read letters backwards. I've seen a lot of like, what's that one common blog that I see all the time that always talks about a dyslexia font, that there's this new font. And if you apply it to text, then people with dyslexia can read it. And like, oh my gosh, I wish that were true. Like that would be awesome. I mean, I think that would be amazing, but it's just simply not the case. It's a colored overlay that you mentioned using prism lenses or eye tracking exercises. None of those things are going to help dyslexia because they don't get at the root cause of dyslexia there. Now that's not to say that those couldn't possibly help someone somewhere. You know, there are visual processing disorders. And so it's a possibility that those types of strategies are helpful for someone who has a visual processing disorder, but that visual processing disorder is not dyslexia. So the way that we help dyslexia is by improving the phonological system. And there's a lot of phonological awareness. So rhyming and phoneme awareness, like what sound do you hear at the beginning of the word sheep? And blending sounds. So if I say at, can you blend those sounds together to make a word? Blending syllables together. So pop, corn, if you blend those together, what word do you get? Right? So those are the kinds of skills that children with dyslexia have the hardest time with. And those are also the same skills that we should be using in our treatment sessions or in, this is not specific to SLPs because lots of different people work with dyslexia. Those are the kinds of skills that need to be taught to kids with dyslexia.
0: This is so fascinating to me. And you're like literally blowing my mind because this is, I mean... I know I was taught something about this a long time ago. Dog is also having her mind blown and or the Amazon <laughs> delivery is
2: coming outside.
0: Like, casual. We're fine. Uh, <laughs> and folks, dog is still alive a year and a half later on cardiac meds. Yay.
1: Oh. <laughs> uh, it's all right. She's contrary today. <laughs> but oh my
0: gosh, the things that I thought that I knew that I did not know. And you finally tied the piece in for me that nobody has been able to make me fully understand the SLP's role in dyslexia because I didn't honestly grasp that it was a phonological impairment disorder. Like that yeah. just, nobody ever really explained it to me And maybe those words. How do you assess for something like this? What yeah. does an SLP do to help with assessments?
2: Yeah, well, and that's that's the perfect question because I was... Gonna just add that it's well within the SLP's scope of practice to assess and treat dyslexia. But I also don't think that the SLP has to be the person who does the assessment or is the only one who can do the treatment. And I think some of the beauty of interprofessional practice is mm-hmm. that it's a possibility that there are kids. Let's just say it in a school because my brain always goes to school-based practice. So thinking about an SLP in a school, there are kids on your caseload who have dyslexia. So regardless of where you're working, what school you're in, if you're listening to this and you're a school-based SLP, I would put my life savings, which arguably isn't that compelling, but I would put my <laughs> life savings on the fact that that there are kids on your caseload with dyslexia, 100%. There is no doubt, absolutely no doubt. Now, the extent to which the SLP is actually involved in the remediation of reading and spelling abilities for kids with dyslexia has everything to do with the dynamics of that particular school. And so I've had a lot of SLPs say like my building principal doesn't want me working on dyslexia with these kids because we have a reading specialist. We have a special education teacher. The classroom teacher is Orton-Gillingham trained and Orton-Gillingham is another program. That was
0: the thing. Um, that was yes, yeah. That was the other word.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a, a commonly cited and, and reported program. And it's a great way to work on dyslexia. Again, not the only way, but it is one way that we can, you know, so let's say the classroom teacher is Orton-Gillingham trained. This kid is getting services from a Reading specialist and has an IEP, and there's a learning support or special education teacher that's also providing code based support to this child. Then, to me, like that makes my little dyslexia loving heart sore. I don't know that there's a role for the SLP in that situation. There might be if that child also has a language impairment or also has a speech sound disorder, but the SLP does not have to be involved with every single case of a child with dyslexia, in my opinion, but there has to be someone providing those services, right? So the worst case scenario is when an SLP says, "You know, my school doesn't even talk about dyslexia. We don't say it here. One, that's unethical and two, it's illegal because the federal mandate of the Individuals with Disabilities of Education Act explicitly says we're allowed to use the word dyslexia. So say dyslexia and use the term dyslexia, talk about dyslexia, And somebody has to be providing services to support the acquisition of strategies for a child with dyslexia. So there has to be some sort of services provided. They don't have to come from the SLP. But to get to your specific question about how do we assess for that, I like to make sure that, and this can be the school psychologist who does this assessment. It can be anybody who has the qualifications to administer these standardized tests. And by the way, yes, SLPs are qualified to administer all the tests I'm about to mention. So I like to give a real word reading assessment. And so that means that the words on the assessment are real words. And I am going to contrast that to non words in a second, but the real word reading assessment gives you data on how a child approaches reading words that are in the language so one example of a test, this is not the only option, but one example is a, it's called the Woodcock reading mastery test. It's in its third edition. And there's a word identification subtest on that assessment in which you present the child in a similar way that you would present, you know, vocabulary words on the PPVT. You know, it's an easel presentation where you just show them the words and they read the words and then you're documenting yes, no, did they read that word correctly?
0: I'm currently emailing all of these to myself to make sure we have them in our clinic. So please oh, yeah. don't go too fast.
2: Yes. Okay. And I can also follow this up with an email to you with more details if you want. And then on that same measure, the second subtest that I would give is something called word attack. And again, it can be any non-word reading subtest. This is just a specific example. But the word attack subtest is a non-word reading subtest. And so non-words on those types of measures are words that follow legal spellings in English And here, this is also something that is a cross linguistic possibility that people can speak more than more languages other than English and have dyslexia, but I'm focusing on English for our relevance here. So, non words follow legal spellings, like they look like they could be real words, but they don't actually have any meaning in the language. So, the benefit of testing non words is that you are completely removing exposure and familiarity. And so, if you have a child who, for instance, has has a real a strong home literacy environment and has been read to every night for their entire lives and has seen just hundreds and hundreds of books in their lifetime. They've seen a lot of words. And so it's a possibility then that when you're measuring real word reading, you are measuring their exposure to print more than you're measuring their reading ability. And so when you look at non words. You're looking at a child's ability to apply letter sound correspondence to a novel word, which is everything they're going to have to do for the rest of their lives to acquire new words through reading, is look at a word they've never seen before and figure out how they might say it or pronounce it, right? This happened to you this morning, Michelle, when you were pronouncing (laughs) Park Carson, right? So like, (laughs) I've never seen this word before. How do I say that, right? And so it's a novel approach to applying letter sound correspondence. And so non-words give us that data. And so what you might see is a discrepancy for some kids between their real word reading and their non-word reading because they've seen those words before. They've seen words like my, I, me, house, you, whatever right? Like they've seen these words before. There's word walls in their classrooms. They've been read books before. They've seen these words on menus and restaurant signs and environmental print, but they've never seen some of the words that are, any of the words that are on the non-word reading task because they're designed that way. Yeah, exactly. And so it's testing their ability to apply their letter sound knowledge. And so what you might see for some kids is that they can read real words. And that they can't read non words. And so that kind of raises a red flag. It doesn't guarantee a diagnosis of dyslexia, but it raises a red flag because they're unable to apply those letter sound correspondences to new words as they see them. One thing I also wanted to say is that it's also very possible for a child to not do well on either of those subtests, that they can't read real words either. That's a possibility, right? Because that's what dyslexia is, is the inability to apply letter sound correspondence to any word, real or non. And so you might see a discrepancy between those two scores, but you actually might see low scores on both. And either one of those profiles could be indicative of dyslexia. So those are, I think, the primary things. I also like to really dig into phonological processing abilities. So things like rhyming and blending and manipulating phonemes. And a specific measure that I like to look at that is called the CTOP, the Comprehensive Test of Phonological Processing.
0: I've seen this test.
2: This test, I know. Yes. That's a good one. And it has a lot of different, I mean, there's probably 10 subtests and I don't think you need to give all 10, but you can. And, you, you know, it has things like digit recall, digit span, you know, so recalling numbers forwards and backwards, which can be useful for looking at how they store phonological information, elision, which is phoneme deletion. So say cat without k and tell me what word you have left or say cowboy without boy and tell me what word you have left. Those types of tasks are phonological in nature only, meaning that you're not providing, for the most part, you're not providing any visual support through orthography or letters. So they're not seeing the letters. They're not seeing the word. They're only hearing it. And that's, I mean, that's what phonology is, is the the sound input of the language and the letter input of a language is its orthography. And the combination of those two is what's required for reading and spelling, or I should say decoding and spelling. And so In a phonological processing task, you're typically removing any orthography and just seeing how a child processes and manipulates and kind of can play around with the sound structure in a language without looking at the print or without having the possible support of the print.
0: Okay. So I have to ask a question and I don't even know if there's an answer to this, but this is where my head goes. When I have a set series of signs and symptoms with respect to PFD, right? Like when I'm going in and I'm seeing signs, symptoms of acid reflux, like raspy vocal quality, sometimes nasal regurgitation, and maybe they've got, oh, by the way, psoriasis of the skin or eczema. Like I immediately start going to what is the medical etiology that's driving this? Uh Is there a like with respect to dyslexia, because what you're describing, like my head goes, okay, so is there a neurologic underlying? Is there a cross wire? Like what's going on with the dendrites in their brain? Is everything Mm -hmm. fully connected? Like, is there any research to support a medical component or a diagnosis? I don't know if I'm answering that
2: right. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. So, I mean, in some ways, dyslexia is a medical diagnosis. Because it's, yes. it's neurobiological, right? You're born with it. You don't get dyslexia later in life. You don't just all of a sudden become dyslexic. You're born dyslexic, so it is a neurobiological impairment. Well, uh-huh. you know, impairment to the extent that me as a researcher, I see it as an impairment to the ability to read. But someone who yes. has dyslexia may not experience it as an impairment. So that's yes, I need to say that first and foremost. But it is neurobiological, so it exists within the brain. There is. A difference in the way that the brain processes phonological information. And so, I mean, that's exactly what the diagnosis is. And from an educational standpoint, it's kind of been unfortunate to see that it's not used as it should be as an educational diagnosis when it 100% has to do with how a child accesses the language. And so, Our job in the schools, both as teachers and as SLPs, is to create a situation in which this child has an easier time accessing the curriculum for whatever that is. If it's strategies, if it's practice, if it's support, if it's consultation with the teacher, whatever it is, our job is to help them access the curriculum. And if you have dyslexia, you're going to have difficulty decoding words and spelling words, which without a doubt, create a situation in which you cannot access the curriculum. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. And so it is seen more actually as a medical diagnosis. Now, can there be more to that as far as additional neurological components? Absolutely. And that starts to get out of my wheelhouse a little bit, you know, (laughs) as far as the extent of that. But yeah, it's neurobiological. It is something you're born with. And that also then means that it is something that you will have for life. So a person who has dyslexia will always be dyslexic. That doesn't mean that they will never be able to read. That doesn't mean that they will never be able to spell. It means that their brain will always process this information differently. And so the team of people who are working with them, whatever that team looks like, including the parents, the job is to Provide them with strategies, support, and a lot of practice to get to a point where they are decoding fluently and that they are able to independently use letter sound correspondence skills to learn and acquire new words. You know, think about the difference in a curriculum from. First grade science lessons to eighth grade science lessons, right? There's so much vocabulary. You know, (laughs) we
0: we just did first grade science lessons at home through COVID. Mom had a really hard time, right? so I can't fathom eighth grade ones. Yeah. Right. okay. It, that there's was a so much. And so, yeah.
2: <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but you know, it, it's true that like there's so much vocabulary that changes and the complexity of that. And you know, when you're asked to read a passage on your own, and one of the words you come across is photosynthesis or chlorophyll, and it has all of these complex morphemes and letter patterns that the k- sound at the beginning of chlorophyll is a ch. Well, ch is usually not pronounced that way. It is sometimes, but it's not always. And so that awareness of how those letter patterns show up differently and how complex that gets over time in a curriculum, that will continue to be a challenge for a person who has dyslexia, but as long as they have the strategies and the continued support, they should be able to improve and to get better. And one of the ways that we can accommodate that is by saying those words out loud. So we're asking them to read something silently, which is fine, but we also have to provide the audio input, right? The phonological input there. They have to hear it. They have to hear the word photosynthesis because they might not be able to automatically get to that phonological structure just through seeing the print alone.
0: Mm. This is absolutely fascinating.
2: (laughs) Oh my God, this is so cool. There's
0: a lot to it, right? Like, yeah, there are. Okay, y'all, before we recorded, we got talking on like a sidebar dream idea that she has. And let me tell you, Dr. Kelly has a freaking amazing idea that I'm hoping to see come to fruition in the next few months. And case study analysis on this is just, there's so much more here than I ever thought. And wow. Okay. Also, I really do need that list of assessments because I want to make sure that we're doing it justice. And I like that. What you described was a dynamic, comprehensive assessment, because what I see is that so many Mm -hmm. clinicians do just like one assessment and then they give a diagnosis. But if you're giving a diagnosis of this nature, you're giving, y'all, this is a neurobiological diagnosis of a disorder. There is gravity to the words that you are using. I mean- Just like when I'm sending out for referrals because I'm seeing signs and symptoms that could allude to eosinophilic esophagitis or celiac disease, there's gravity to the words that you're using.
2: Well, and, and I think you're making a really good point here too, that what I didn't say, so I only really mentioned the word reading assessments. There's so much more to it, right? So we have to be talking to yeah. the family. We have to be talking to the teacher. You need to do a classroom observation. You also need to look at their speech sound ability. You need to look at their language because these two things co-occur. Dyslexia and language disorder co-occur. Dyslexia and speech sound disorder co-occur. So we need to be really capturing a comprehensive profile of these kids and the data can't come just from testing the kids. The data have to come also from talking to the teacher, looking at what's happening in the classroom, like ask to look at a spelling test. Mm -hmm. Let's say for instance, the teacher is the one that makes the referral and this particular recommendation extends beyond dyslexia. The teacher is the one who makes the referral. Well, the teacher should be making that referral based on data, right? Get Mm -hmm. that data. Like, where Mm -hmm. is that information coming from that the teacher is making a referral to you to do the screening, right? I think so many times SLPs feel this burden of like, now I have to collect all this data by myself and I don't even know this kid. Well, and rightfully so, because that is common practice, right? But we have to be relying on our educational partners. We have to be relying on the classroom teacher, the reading specialist, the special ed teachers, whoever else is intersecting with this child to see what their experience is with this child. So why are you referring this kid? Like, give me all the data that you have, the spelling test, the reading test, the homework, explicit examples from your observations of this child. And then add other teachers into this conversation as well. This is not the classroom teacher, even if this is a elementary school with self-contained classrooms, it's very likely that these kids still go to music, art, library, gym, physical education, right? So they're going to these quote unquote special classes. So what does the librarian think about this child? What has been the librarian's experience helping this particular child pick out books week to week? Has the art teacher noticed that they have to repeat directions in a very specific way at a very specific pace for this child? Does this child benefit from written instructions or visuals, right? So like ask for support. It should be a team-based approach and in fact, when we're thinking about building an IEP, an individualized education plan, it has to be a team-based approach. That is not the SLP alone. although it might feel that way. And I understand that because I live that, but it can't be that way. Legally, you're not allowed to have just one team member. You have to have at least the parents and the teacher. But the classroom teacher is not the only person. There's a lot of other people in this child's life who can be weighing in on what this particular perhaps it's an impairment, but whatever this is, what it looks like, you know, in an environment, because the reality is if they do poorly on my reading assessment, for example, but they're doing great in class, then who cares about their score on a test, right? If they're doing great in class, the teacher's not concerned. They have no issues with the classroom demands at the current time. Who cares about a score on a test? Mm -hmm. Right? Maybe that's not what they need in this moment. That doesn't mean that things won't change in the future, but this is not something that the SLPs have to take on by themselves. And they really shouldn't take on by themselves. This has to be a team based approach.
0: You can't be a silo PFD therapist. You can't be a silo dyslexia therapist. Just say.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yes. So to get at the core of all things that we do, everything has to be driven by interprofessional practice partnerships.
2: Yeah, totally. Yes, it's hard. And it's, you know, I think I could probably talk with you for another hour about how hard it can be, you know?
0: Yes. And I'm just thinking about in my head, <laughs> in, my, in my little ADD, ADHD brain, I've gone to my clinic class and how to embed this topic into the clinic class with respect to this is what it looks like, like taking it from this is best practice. And I know that they're learning that in their classwork, but like when you're seeing it in a clinic, when you're going out into your practicums and I'm trying to figure out how to. So when you get an email next week, can I ask you to come do a one hour in-service guest lecture with my students? You <laughs> bet, <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'd be happy to. Yeah, I, you know, I think the more they also talk to other people about it too, is like any yes. one university is only as good as the faculty members who are there. And it's yes. impossible to have, a faculty, a set of faculty members yeah that are experts on every little thing i know at fsu mm-hmm. we don't have a pediatric feeding expert so in the ways that your program is strong because you're there that's one of the weaknesses of our program and so i think that's the case for programs around the country that it's good to talk to other faculty at other places because there's no possible way to have content experts in every little niche area and sustain a program it's just not financially possible either you know
0: well i will gladly do a trade Mentoring oh, me so that I, yeah. I'm like,
2: yay. <laughs> okay, you heard
0: All it here right. first. <laughs> you, heard, you heard it here first, folks. We're going to torture each other's graduate students coming this fall, <laughs> and the graduate students that are listening are like, "Oh dear God, what has she done now?" <laughs> okay, so in the nine minutes to spare. If someone has listened to us and followed all of the squirrels and they may or may not be feeling (laughs) overwhelmed by working with someone that has a reading and literacy, can you give them like a how-to guide? Because I'm thinking in the schools, they may get that new referral in, but like, my Mm -hmm. goodness gracious, what if they already have like 62 on a caseload? Oh,
2: So like, hey. And they probably do. Yeah. Well, okay. So the way that I typically approach... This overwhelming amount of information, whenever I do, you know, I do day long workshops or I even my students in a semester long course, it's one hard thing at a time. And so, if this feels like completely overwhelming, and there's going to be variability there, some people aren't going to be quite as overwhelmed as others, just depending on their own personal experience, interests, workload, all of it, think of what's the one next thing that you might be able to do here? So are you at a point where you feel like, okay, this is interesting to me. I know nothing about it. I'm not ready to take an action step, but I'm ready to learn more. Then there are online things I can point you in that are, in fact, I'll I'll send these to you, Michelle. I can send you things to read. I can send you things to watch. That will at least give you a little bit more information to help you feel like, okay, this is something I could maybe have a conversation about now. I know a little bit more about it. If you're already at that point and you're ready for an action step, honestly, I think the best thing you could do is have a conversation with either your special education director, and this is kind of tailored to school-based SLPs, your special education director or your educational psychologist, and just say like, how do we handle dyslexia here? What does that look like? And I would like to be at the table for some of these conversations. And that doesn't sign you up for anything other than being at the table. What I typically tell SLPs is that, you know, there are a lot of language experts and a lot of literacy experts in a school building. There are a lot of specialists, educators who think about how kids learn to read, how kids learn to spell, how kids learn and use language, vocabulary, all of that. There's no one in that building, unless there's another SLP, there's no one in that building who thinks about phonology. No one. Even the reading specialists. And I've worked with some of the most outstanding reading specialists you can imagine. But they think about phonology completely differently than we do. We are the only phonology expert in the building. And so the fact that we are not at the table for discussions about phonological disorders, meaning dyslexia, is just preposterous to me. And so I think the biggest action step is to get to the table, get a seat at the table to talk about these phonological disorders. And again, if you're not ready for that, then you're starting back with, you know, reading a little bit more, going to some more professional development. Maybe the conversation with your special education director is we need more training here about dyslexia. We need to bring in someone to help us learn this. And so maybe that's the conversation, but I think the end goal should be having a seat at the table because the way that it actually manifests in your building is going to be so different depending on the dynamics of your building. So you mentioned, Michelle, having you know a caseload of 62. And let's say that that caseload is divided across four buildings. So in addition so, to having 62 yeah. kids, you are seeing all the elementary schools in the building or you see four of the 10 elementary schools in this district, right? So you can't be at every single table and you can't be in every single building and you're not going to be anywhere every day. It's not physically possible to be at four buildings every day. And so the way that you're contributing is going to be really different depending on your very specific workload and caseload. So my building, for instance, I was in an elementary school building, K through six, and that's a pretty large span of grades. You might be in a building that's K to two, right? So the ways that you're going to interact and and talk about this and be involved in this is going to really change depending on all the dynamics of your building and the teachers that you work with. So I think a next step, maybe once you have a seat at the table is finding one teacher to start the process of collaborating with, because you're not going to, do this in isolation. Because the end goal of any school-based speech therapy is to help a child access the curriculum. So no matter what they're seeing you for, your goal is to get them access to the curriculum. And so if they already have that access, they don't need you. Your job is to help them get that access. And so you're going to find out whether or not they have that access through the teacher, The teacher is the one running the curriculum and determining whether or not a child is on board and on pace and where they need the most support. And so that conversation has to happen. The collaboration between SLPs and classroom teachers, I think, has the potential to be incredibly powerful, but also incredibly overwhelming. So pick one teacher and have a conversation and kind of see where that can help morph into over time. It's going to take time. So patience and persistence and advocacy, I think are going to be your best friends. I'm
0: just in all of you and trying to process all of this.
2: It's a lot. I know.
0: No, it is, but it's, you also just made it doable and viable. Number one, if you send me the contact information, then I can put that, um, not the contact information, the recommendations on the courses and the reading articles, as well as the assessments, Miss Annalisa Nicolatis, who just entered the workforce as a CF. She's one of the lovely additional producers behind the scenes. She can add it to the show notes. Great. And so I can get that in. And then if there's a way, and I'm just putting this out there, having a simple how to guide. It would be awesome to have, I don't know if you've done this before, so forgive me if you had, but if you were to have like a webinar where you did like a how to guide on how to like what are the steps going from the seat at the table to doing a dynamic assessment and then going into different how to embed, push in and I'm just putting so many different things in the universe and
2: on you and I apologize. <laughs> no, that's okay. And I have done a little bit of that in some of my webinars and workshops that I'll send you. Yeah. I'll also send you, this is an article that came out. So there was actually, a, I'll send you all the details of this, but there was a clinical forum in LSHSS, which is one of Ash's journals, Language, Speech, and Hearing Services in the School's. And it, yeah. And it was edited by Dr. Tiffany Hogan. And the entire clinical forum is about dyslexia. And there are some absolutely incredible articles. So my plan is to send you the link to that whole clinical forum, which is completely free to all ASHA members. And one of the articles in that forum is one that I had the opportunity to collaborate on as an author. And we do have, there's a figure in this article that's a decision-making tree. For how you might, you know, you've got a kindergartner who has difficulty learning letter names and sounds, what would be your next steps and it kind of walks through the referral process so some pretty concrete steps for what to do. In that same paper we also have a sample assessment checklist. So areas of consideration when conducting a comprehensive assessment for a child who has suspected phonological deficits for reading or speech, meaning you might be suspecting dyslexia. So we have a checklist in this article. So I'll send you all of this to add to the show notes. But just in case anybody who's listening doesn't access the show notes this article is titled, Exploring the Overlap Between Dyslexia and Speech Sound Production Deficits. And the first author is Katie Cabbage, who is a faculty member at Brigham Young University. So that's the article to look for, and it is free to all ASHA members, but I'll also send it to you to include.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Okay. So after you finish your lovely 10-year packet and you bring back, which I wish you all of the goodness on this, because I don't know what all that entails, but I have confidence in you. When that is complete and you bring back Phonetics Friday, how can folks find you research that piece?
2: Oh, yeah. So on Instagram, I'm at classlab underscore FSU. And that's where all the Phonetics Friday content takes place. So it doesn't take place anywhere else. That's where all of that lives. I have a lab website. I'll send you the link, but it's classlab.cci.fsu.edu. So that's kind of a long one, but class lab <laughs> is all one word, class lab, C-L-A-S-S-L-A-B. And on that website, all of my publications are available for free. So there are some publications that we have in journals that are not ASHA journals, meaning they're not freely accessible to ASHA members, but we have free versions available on that website. And also anybody could ever could email me or contact me through that website to get articles if they can't find them. But That website has resources. It has recommended websites, recommended webinars, all of our publications for free. And so that's another way that people can find our work.
0: That's amazing. Excellent.
2: Kelly, thank you.
0: Thank you, Michelle. This was so much fun. This was amazing. Yes. We have to come back and do a part two because I want to know how you go from assessment to treatment. So could we like come back for like later in the fall for a part two? Yes.
2: Absolutely. Yeah
0: beautiful okay so everybody that's listening go check her out on the wild world of the internet <laughs> don't forget to follow first bite on at first bite podcast on instagram and first bite um facebook page and you know we love it when you hit us up with some five stars on the apple podcast or drop a positive word of encouragement there and if you Dyslexia is new to you and you're a PFD person, don't forget my book Chasing the Swallow has been published. It's available for sale on Amazon and it's also eligible for 13 and a half ASHA continuing education hours through speechtherapypd.com. So everybody out there, thank you for tuning in and Kelly. Oh my gosh, you're amazing.
2: You're amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.
0: Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open-access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. be kind and feed those babies Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures Okay. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the master's of speech language pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah. I stay pretty busy. But those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye.